Good morning. I would just echo George's welcome to you, especially if you're a guest or a visitor with us this morning. We hope that you will enjoy your time with us uh, this morning and stay for lunch afterwards. As George has said, you're joining us in the middle of our series on 2 Thessalonians, living in the light of Christ's return. And this morning, we're going to be picking up for the second half of chapter 2. And I'm picking up just where Jim left us off last week. So if you want to, turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's page 989 in the ESV or the Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, It's June next week, which means it's only six months to Christmas, so I can make a Christmas illustration. Um, When I used to live at home, uh, my mum and I would make Christmas dinner. Uh, And uh, if you have any sort of interest in cooking or or culinary ability, you know that Christmas dinner is the one meal where you have to really pull it out of the bag. So it was obviously overly complex. And uh, to help us with it on the day, we would sit down in the day or two before and we'd make out a time plan. And we'd write out the whole morning at five-minute intervals and write down exactly what would need to happen at each moment, turkey in and, and ham out and all of that. And so we, we put all of the thought and put all of the effort into that so that when it came to Christmas morning, we didn't have to worry about that. We just sort of trusted the time plan. And every year, without fail, usually about half ten, my mum would lose her nerve. And she would say, do you not think it's time we put the, uh, the stuffing in by now? Stuffing was usually the culprit because it had sausage meat in it. And in her worldview, sausage meat needs to be cooked for about eight hours to be Sarah. And every Christmas morning I would say the same thing. I'd say, Mom, just trust the plan. Just trust the time plan. Things are in control. Things are not happening at random here whenever we want to. Things are not spiraling away from us. Just trust the plan. And that's not totally dissimilar to the message that Paul has been bringing to this young church in Thessalonians. Because that young church in that city was having a difficult time. The city that they lived in hadn't taken well to their new faith. And so they were suffering persecution. They were suffering difficulty in their lives from their friends, from their neighbors and colleagues, perhaps in their places of work. They were being persecuted for their faith. And then on top of that, as we thought last week, they had been shaken by a letter that seemed to be a forgery that had come to them claiming to be from Paul and telling them that the the day of the Lord had already come. Uh, uh, Perhaps they had missed the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And that had shaken them. That had shaken and unnerved them. And as Jim took us through that first difficult section of chapter 2 last week, we see Paul set them right on that. We see Paul say that actually there is a plan that is unfolding here. Things are not just happening at random. And so Paul, in in that first part of this chapter, paints them this vivid picture on a vast canvas, this, this struggle through time, and God in control of all of it. And I wonder how you might have felt if you were one of the Thessalonians sitting there listening to that listening to that grand vista of God in control of everything, every detail of history, of the cosmic forces of good and evil doing battle throughout time, and how God sits in control of all of it. Perhaps you might have felt very small. You might have felt sitting there in Thessalonica that that sort of a God sounded very distant and remote, Someone perhaps who had much more important things on his plate 
than your current struggles and persecutions. Sitting there with persecution just for being a Christian, and God away up there in the sky, guiding and directing history, distant and remote. And that's a common view of God today as well, isn't it? Some faiths would paint God unashamedly as that sort of a distant architect. And unfortunately, some Christians have that view of God as well, don't we? Perhaps some of you this morning see God like that. A distant figure moving the pieces on the cosmic chessboard. Is that where Paul leaves them in in, in this letter? Well, no, it's not. Are they left there feeling perhaps like a soldier in the trenches of World War I? We know that there's a general away behind the line somewhere moving the little pieces on the map. But that all seems very remote to them, sludging through the mud, waiting for the sign to go over the parapet. And when the bullets are flying and the bombs are going off, you're left there. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. And that is perhaps how they could have felt. But that is not where Paul leaves them. Paul has corrected this false idea that the day of the Lord has come. He set them right on the grand scale, but he doesn't leave things there. In these last few verses of chapter 2, he shifts his focus and zeroes right in on their lives, and he says essentially to them here, this same God who sits with his hand on the events of human history has his hand on your lives as well. Paul's message to them in these verses is this. God has been active in your past, he is active in your present, and he has a plan for your future. He's been active in your past, he is active in your present, and he is guiding you to a certain destination. So let's read those verses, starting at verse 13 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless his word to us. Paul is trying to paint for them here this idea that God has been working not just across the time of history but across the moments of their lives. Look at how through these verses he weaves the past and the present and the future in what he says. He says, God shows you as first fruits to be saved. That's common for Paul to to picture or talk about the first people who came to faith in an area. And we've thought not that long ago about how first fruits are a sign that a harvest is coming. Paul's telling them, no matter how things seem at the moment, you are the first fruits of what I anticipate to be a, a spiritual harvest. God chose you as first fruits to be saved. And to this, he called you through our gospel in the past. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us 
and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace in the past. Then he talks about the present. He says at the moment you'll be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's happening right now. He prays that God would comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That's happening right now. And then he says, look to the future. Why is this happening? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a movement in your life. There is a plan at work in your life. God is working through time, not just through the pages of the history book, but across the days of your life. He says he called you through our gospel. He gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. How did he give us good hope? Well, a good hope is not something that is vague or, or, or intangible. It's not the hope that, well, I hope that when everything ends and it all wraps up that I land in heaven. I hope that I've done enough to sort of uh, weigh up the scales in my favor. I hope I gave enough to the church collection box last week. I hope I was out at enough meetings and ticked enough boxes. I hope that really God just sort of takes a light view of things and, and lets me in the door. That's not that substantial a hope. It's not a hope either that's based on things that we've done. Hoping that we've done enough good to, to tip the scales in our balance because most of us live inside our own bodies and we know the quiet sins and wrongdoings and attitudes of our hearts. And I think we know if there was an honest accounting of the good and the bad in our lives, we probably wouldn't take those odds. So that's not much hope either. But that's not the hope that Paul says you were given. He says you were given a good hope through grace. Through grace. The hope that we have forgiveness, that we have restoration to God, that we have a relationship with the living God, not based on a vagueness, not based on something we're contributing and that we could stumble over, but based on the fact that God has done what is needed and just offers it. It's his gracious offer. Here it is. Just take it. And so knowing that we have nothing that we can fail in and knowing that we are certain of that offer as we are certain of God in his word, we know that we have a good hope. We have an eternal comfort. We have something solid. So Paul says God has given you that good hope. That hope that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet something that most people would have passed by, God, though he had everything he needed, wanted us that is the good hope that we have been given. And then Paul says he's called us through his gospel. He gave us eternal comfort and good hope. And he is saving us through sanctification so that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. We'll just take a moment because sanctification is one of the great Christian jargon words. And you may not understand it. Sanctification is the word that we use to describe the ongoing progressive transformation of someone's life over the course of their whole life to become more and more and more like the Lord Jesus. Not in the sense of being carbon copies or replicants of him, but in the sense that our nature and our attitudes and our values begin to move more and more to be like those of the Lord Jesus. That is our sanctification, and that is an ongoing work that happens throughout our lives. 
And Paul is very clear here that he credits that work to the Holy Spirit. To the Holy Spirit. You, you are being saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And those two will always go hand in hand. God's truth through God's word and God's Holy Spirit are the engine of our sanctification over the course of our lives. And there has been a tendency in traditions like ours to treat sanctification as a bit of an add-on. We got saved when we prayed the sinner's prayer, when we walked down the aisle at the altar call, whatever it was, and then the sanctification, the becoming like Jesus is a sort of a, an add-on that maybe happens some of the time when we're being especially good, if we're lucky, at points in our life. And that attitude that we're sort of saved and then we have sanctification. That is not what Paul says here. Paul does not say you're saved to sanctification. Paul says you are saved through sanctification. It is the vehicle by which you are saved. What does he mean by that? Salvation is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the life of an individual. And there are different elements to that work that the gospel does in someone's life. Some of them happen instantaneously and once and for all. Some of them are happening and ongoing, and some of them have yet to happen. And one of the ones that is ongoing is our sanctification. And so we are being saved through sanctification. Why? Well, Paul tells us, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul revisits that idea at other places, but he says, you are being sanctified, you are being made more like the Lord Jesus so that you will obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. Just think about that for a minute. You and I are going to share the glory that the Lord Jesus has, the Son of God, the creator of the world. We are going to share in that glory. Why on earth would that happen? Well, Paul, in Romans, one of the places he comes back to this idea, in Romans 8, he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, to be made like the image of his Son, that's the Lord Jesus, in order that he, the Lord Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why are we being sanctified? Why are we being made like Christ? So that we will share in his glory. We sang that this morning. The heavens will glow with splendor, but greater still than they, the saints arrayed in glory. And so when the Lord Jesus comes, he will be surrounded by a crowd of people who look like him who reflect his character, who reflect his nature, who reflect his values, and through that reflection, magnify his glory. We glorify the Lord Jesus by becoming more like him. We're being saved through sanctification. And just for a moment, as a pastoral point, think how that infuses a great meaning to moments in your life that would otherwise pass by totally unnoticed. The kind word, perhaps, that you say to a stranger. The elderly widow who puts five pounds of her pension into the church collection box. Your attitude in your own heart whenever you suffer unfairness or persecution. No one on earth will ever know what that attitude was. 
No one on earth will ever see that five pounds or hear those words. And yet, as you have reflected in each of those actions and attitudes, the Lord Jesus, you have glorified him. This is why as a Christian, our lives are not about what is seen. It's about what we are. As we become like the Lord Jesus, we glorify him. Publicly, yes, but how many moment-by-moment events privately in our lives, as we reflect the Lord's attitudes and values, we bring him glory. And so Paul says he's called us through his gospel. He is saving us through sanctification. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, like any other aspect of your salvation. This isn't something you're doing. The Holy Spirit is doing this in your life through belief in the truth. And then he says, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's point to the Thessalonians here in the midst of their persecution and their uncertainty is the same God who is orchestrating the pages of history is active in the story of your life. You as an individual, your life. And perhaps you needed to hear that this morning. Perhaps as a Christian, your view of God has become warped, seeing him as a distant puppet master, not terribly involved or engaged in your own struggles day to day. That is not what Paul says. Paul says, this is the God who loved us, who called you through his gospel, who is active in your life every single day, and who has a destination in mind for you. So Thessalonians, not only is God active on the the global and cosmic scale, but that same God has his hand on your life. And so having spent that time talking to them about how God has been proactively guiding their lives, Paul then has this exhortation for them. He encourages them. Now you would expect that the human response to that would be to be passive. If God is doing this, God has his hand on my life, well, I'll just sort of sit back and let it happen. And yet Paul, in the midst of this, has an active command for them. He says, stand firm. In the midst of that persecution that you're facing in your city, stand firm. In the midst of the false teaching that has shaken you, stand firm. I don't know if you've ever attempted surfing or bodyboarding on the North Coast or even plain old swimming. If you're visiting Northern Ireland, I would encourage you to go and see our our beautiful North Coast. One of the things that really marks it out is that it has fantastic waves. It's great for, for surfing and things like that. But if you walk into the sea there, and this happened to me so much as a child, and, and you're looking around you, you're not really thinking about what's happening, suddenly a wave hits you, and you're under the water, and the salt is up your nose, and you're scrambling to find which way is up and get yourself back and ride it again. Because whenever you're wading into waves, it's not enough just to sort of stand passively. You grind your heels into the sand, you lean forwards, you face it coming on, and you brace yourself for it to stand firm. Or a boxer. If you watch a good boxer, you will see that there is as much skill and attention goes into their feet as goes into their hands. Their feet almost never stop moving, even whenever their body is stationary. Because they know that to hold their position in the face of adversity, it's an active thing. 
And so Paul is commanding the Thessalonians, in the light of this, stand firm. So how do we stand firm? Well, three ways. Two of them we've already thought about. Stand firm because we have the assurance that God is in control of the whole span of history. Whatever troubles or trials are affecting us in this time, at this moment, they are part of a bigger plan, and the God who loves us is in control. Secondly, God is active in our lives. God is sanctifying you and has a destination in mind for you, so stand firm in that. And finally, Paul couples the instruction to stand firm with this. He says, hold to the traditions that you received from us, that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul says that teaching that you got from me, the apostle, and from my fellow workers, hold on to that. Hold on to that. See, you cannot stand firm without a foundation, without something to plant your feet onto. And Paul's very clear to the Thessalonians, that foundation is the truth that I have delivered to you. And that is true for us today as well. We have the truth once delivered for all to the saints. God's truth has been delivered to us through his word. And that is the foundation on which we stand firm. And we cannot hold on to the truth. We cannot stand firm on it if we don't know it and if we don't understand it. Listening recently to someone talking about visiting a relatively young church in in another part of the world and some of the Christians there would stand up and they would pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the ancestors. And that's because they don't yet know the whole of the truth. Don't yet know it. And that is something that as a new church, a new believer, when the gospel penetrates a culture for the first time, Those are the moments when you are most susceptible to that. You don't know the truth. And all sorts of mistakes and all sorts of errors can come in and cloud our thinking. And especially if you're a young Christian. When you don't yet know the whole of God's teaching, that's when things can go awry. You not know the truth. I know a long time ago now of a very sad situation where a man misunderstood a verse or a few verses of scripture, didn't understand them, and and he believed that God had assured him that his father, who had terminal cancer, would live. And when his father died, his faith was shattered because he didn't understand. Didn't understand God's teaching. He didn't understand what promises are made and what promises are not made. He didn't know the truth. And we need to understand the truth. And I know of multiple people who grew up in Christian homes, in solid evangelical churches, who went to Sunday school, sat in the church as they grew up, and then they went off to university or into employment. And things, bit by bit, just started to fade away. Church became every few Sundays, and then no Sundays. And their grip just wasn't really there. And today they're nowhere spiritually because they didn't hold on to the truth. We need to know and to understand and to hold on to it, to stand firm. So there's no apology in our church for the time spent teaching God's word. 
line by line, precept upon precept, again and again, teaching it and explaining it and applying it to each of our lives, to living under its authority, discussing it amongst ourselves, because it is through this teaching, once delivered, that we will stand firm. And there is also a responsibility on each of us as Christians to take the time in our lives to read God's word for ourselves and to think about it, to try and understand it and put it together in our heads, and not just to pass over bits that seem difficult or strange or unusual. You must, must, must build a solid understanding of who God is and what he has done and how he has saved you, and how he is active in your life, and what his word teaches about life today, and what he wants of people, and what he hopes for people. You must build that solid understanding. You must do it, or you will not stand firm when the waves come. You will not stand firm. And so Paul's challenge to the Thessalonians, Paul's comfort to the Thessalonians is this. God is in control. God is in control in your life. And so stand firm and hold on to the teachings that have been delivered to you. And so as we close this morning, what have we learned? Well, we've seen Paul's burden to communicate to them that both in the macro and the micro both on the vast stage of history and culture and in the small day-by-day unfolding of the moments of your life, God is in control. So stand firm. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says to them that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And perhaps that's not the case for you this morning. Perhaps you've heard it in word only. Our prayer as a church would be that you would examine what Paul has taught the Thessalonians. You would come to meet the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. And you would come into a relationship with him. That you would taste that good hope that he offers us through grace. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for its clarity, for how it speaks directly into each of our lives. Father, we thank you that we have confidence that this world, as chaotic as it seems, is not beyond you. Father, we thank you that our lives are not something that are a remote and secondary consideration, but things that you care so deeply about that you are active in each of our lives, day by day, moment by moment. Father, we thank you that you have a destination in mind for us. We cannot even imagine how we will share the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And yet, Father, we pray that you would sanctify us by your Spirit and belief in the truth so that we would reflect his glory. And Father, from the depths of our hearts, we ask for um, anyone here this morning who has heard this in word only, pray that you would speak to them through your gospel 
that they would come to know and to love you, that they would put their faith and trust in you, and you would give them that eternal comfort and good hope through your grace. In your name we ask it.